In this edition of the podcast, museums and galleries around the world prepare for the 50th anniversary of this. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Locally, Gippsland Art Gallery in Victoria is one of many hopping on the lunar rover to celebrate and will speak with self-confessed space geek and curator Erin Matthews about their plans. Looking at spaces in unusual places, the Maverick Gallery on the Gold Coast is also home to a hairdressing salon and the ideal home is open at the powerhouse in Sydney right now and curator Campbell Bickerstaff bridges the gap between industrial design and standalone art. I'm Tim Stackpole, and this is Inside the Gallery. Thanks for downloading the podcast once again with plenty going on in the art world right now. Let's get moving and fire up the Pixel Perfect Pro Lab podcast prize wheel. They sponsor the wheel, which determines for us the order in which we undertake our interviews. And you've heard me say before, Pixel Perfect Pro Lab are phenomenal in printing images for professional photographers or undertaking photographic reprints of artworks with a special emphasis and expertise in faithful colour rendering and reproduction. So, from photo printing to fine art printing to art reproduction, head to their website at www.pixelperfect.com.au and learn how they guarantee accuracy, consistency and quality. That's pixelperfect.com.au and their sponsorship goes towards creating the transcriptions of our interviews which are posted online for the hearing impaired. And you can find those in the description of this podcast at www.insidethegallery.com.au. Okay, let me arm the Sharpie and write the names of our guests on the wheel. Aaron Matthews at Gippsland Art Gallery. Campbell Bickerstaff, his ideal home at the Powerhouse. And Byron Kothup at Maverick in Coolangatta. Okay, time for our first spin. And let's head into space. The anniversary of the first manned moon landing is on the 20th of July, 50 years in fact since that day, and the Gippsland Art Gallery is one of many undertaking celebrations with a special exhibition. And Erin Matthews, the curator, has taken the time to have a chat. Erin, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So this notion of having a space exhibition, I mean, we know the anniversary is coming up, but how did it come about for you? Well, for me, it was actually something that was already in the works when I started this job here at Gibson Art Gallery. So I've been here for less than a year now. Uh And luckily for me, it was a um, show that our director had already um, put on the the table. Right. And I jumped at the chance to to continue with this show. So I guess the the um, important bit about why we wanted to do it here is that um, we, Gippsland Art Gallery, has a motto which is art for Gippsland and about Gippsland. Mm-hmm. And for us, that includes both supporting our local um, arts community and the local artists, which we have heaps of amazing artists here in Gippsland, but also involves bringing art to our area that we really, we really think our communities should see. And that was one of the things about this show is that it's such a huge worldwide phenomenon and we really wanted to be a part of that. Okay. Now, you were talking about how, you know, you bring art to the gallery, which is relevant to the people of Gippsland, but I'm still Mm -hmm. trying to work out the connection between space and the space program and the gallery. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess um, that we actually have a lot of local artists, a lot of which are in the show, who are really focused on the idea of space and kind of the mystery and the excitement of space. So we've got quite a few of those artists that are in this show as well as looking at kind of the historical um, and other um, Australia-wide contemporary artists as well. So we have a really important 
education program here at the gallery. So we have an amazing team, um, including our education officer and our guides who work really closely with our member schools and also our public programs. And that's something that we felt this show would also be really helpful in terms of educating both kids and the general public about um, the 50-year anniversary and hoping that we can kind of bring that excitement back down to Pipsland. So this was already underway when you joined the gallery, but how have you pulled all the pieces together? How far have you reached in order to actually put this uh, exhibition on the floor? Ah, that's a good question. Well, there was a lot of emails and a lot of spreadsheets. Let's (laughs) start with that. Um, So when I started, we had the... finalised the bones of the show, which are some NASA photographs which are currently online from NGV. Mm-hmm. That was our kind of baseline for the show. And since then, I've been able to work really hard on researching and searching out contemporary artists who have responded to that idea of space. So while we are um, focusing on the anniversary of the moon landing, I've broadened it out a little bit more to kind of encompass everything around humanity's excitement and mystery about what is out there and our place in the universe. So for me, there was a lot of um, different artists that I was able to include and unfortunately many more that I would have also liked to include. So maybe there'll be another one in the next 10-year anniversary. Do you think that whole, I mean, I'm wondering about the connection here, that whole reaching for the stars and, Mm. and achieving a goal is not so different to an artist sitting in front of a canvas, for instance, and then wanting Absolutely. and then wanting to reach and achieve a goal. Do you see a connection mm-hmm. there, or am I kind of stretching things a little bit? No, I think it's. I think that's absolutely right. So a lot of the things that I look at when I kind of see space, and I will, I, you know, I definitely am a space geek, um, is that kind of unknown and that that unsureness, and also that slight uncomfortableness that you get when you kind of realise how small we are, or you're kind of looking looking up at the vastness. And I think that's something that a lot of artists are really good at communicating because they do start with that nothing and they have to build up to something that they can then describe and show and be able to communicate with other people as well and is quite similar, I feel. In terms of what you have in the uh, exhibition, what sort of things mm-hmm. can we uh, can we expect to see? Oh, it's really exciting. So I have a really good mix right from the NASA photos, as I mentioned before. Um, and we have a whole lot of wonderfully generous artists and also private lenders that should allow us to include a really large selection of items. So we range from, for example, the photograph of the memorial to fallen astronauts on the moon artwork, which is up on the moon at the moment, which shows the plaque and the tiny little astronaut figurine that was left um, on the moon, which Mm. was in memory of the astronauts who died in the pursuit of getting to the moon. So something like that, right through to I have a countdown clock studio from the Kennedy Space Center at Cape Canaveral, which is really cool. And also then a whole lot of artists um, including Gippsland and Australia White artists like Leslie Duxbury, Sam Leach, Jasmine Target, Dale Cox, and heaps more. Now, how did you draw the line between putting together an art exhibition and then putting together a museum of science and technology? Did you have to kind of hold yourself back in that respect? I think it was uh, pretty evenly balanced. But for me, it came down to more about the education as well. I didn't want this just to be a show that just art people could come to. I was really hoping that this would be something that will draw in our community and crowds who might not consider themselves art people. They might consider themselves more in the science area. And I'm really hoping to bridge that gap. So for me, it was a really good mix to be able to have some of those original photos and those kind of historical hardware bits and then be able to um, show them the way the artists have responded to that idea and hopefully really bridge that gap. Because I don't think you have to be one or the other. I really think you can have an art and a science background and you can have both of those things. Given that you may not have a long history 
with the gallery there. Do you think this is a very different exhibition for the gallery? Um, I've talked a lot with our director, Simon Gregg, about this idea of the show. And we do put a little bit of that kind of museum context in our normal exhibitions. We've just opened a show and gallery too, which is called Stories from the Collection, which is looking at the history of art in Gippsland. And it is kind of more of a educational museum kind of format. There's a lot of um, information in there as well. So I guess that balance is definitely there for us. We do a lot of um, more traditional art gallery shows as well, I suppose you'd say. And having that mix as well, we really still add to that idea that art is for everybody and it's for everyone in our community. And we don't want to assume any knowledge of people, but we also want to provide that understanding that people can come and they can learn and participate in lots of different areas. And hopefully by having, you know, many different shows in our spaces, they'll find something that they really enjoy. Yes, and I think everyone would agree that uh, art galleries are all about guiding people through the art Mm. rather than just displaying it anyway. So it's not unusual at all to see that. But in terms of those inclusions, if I can just go back to that, were you surprised at anything that was uncovered in terms of curating this exhibition? I guess mostly I was surprised by how many artists actually were also fake scripts, fake scripts like I was. <laughs> I um I think I was emailing quite a few people when I started and kind of putting the feelers out there and finding a few people that would be really interested. And I got so many responses back and phone calls from people that just said, I could sense that you were really excited about this and that you were as excited as I was. So I really wanted to be involved. And that was really lovely to me because it is, I guess it is a bit of a specific topic, but... Mm. It's just something that I found so many people have loved and the response from the people in my team and also the people in our, in our area that know this show is coming has been really good as well. So I think it's going to be definitely a highlight for our um, exhibition calendar this year. Yeah, I think it's quite unique because art oftentimes is about romance. It's about angst, mm-hmm. sometimes being troubled and then sometimes yeah. being inspired. And mm. then to see a space exhibition kind of come out of that that enthusiasm Mm. I mean, it is quite unique. I mean, that's kind of what attracted me to have a chat with you about it. But mm. the more you've lived with it, I guess, the more you've seen a great connection, as we spoke about before, between art and science. Absolutely. And that's something that's really important for us here, especially because we do have uh, this kind of motto in the go, which is art for everyone. And we really want to make our gallery a spot that everyone in the community feels that they can come. And having these types of shows that maybe have a slightly different bent will hopefully draw those people in and then they can realise that it's not just for a certain type of people that everyone's welcome to do heaps of kids' activities and public programs and all that kind of stuff to bring people in in the hope that they will come and get just as enthusiastic as we are about this show. Now, this show, if I'm right, runs through until September, yeah? And, and in terms of, of you saying you had so much content, you might have a second show. What what is it you've had to what, what is it you've had to leave out? Oh gosh, just mostly I've had. Unfortunately, I had a lovely um, digital uh, series of pieces that was presented to me by someone quite recently that I actually couldn't fit it in on my wall. I have packed the exhibition out with as many things as I can possibly fit in. Mm. But um, there's there has been a lot of artists that have just been that, that I guess I was surprised by the amount of people who would who were just incredibly enthusiastic and excited about all of this kind of stuff, just as much as I was. So I don't know, I guess it's, uh, there's a lot of artists out there who are really interested and I wish I could have put more in. Erin, look, you're very excited about it and congratulations <laughs> on actually continuing to have the courage to put to such an exhibition together and we really appreciate your time on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Erin Matthews there from the Gippsland Art Gallery and there are more details about their exhibition posted at www.gippslandartgallery.com.
two interviews to go. Campbell at the Powerhouse or Byron on the Gold Coast, the Pixel Perfect Pro Lab podcast prize wheel, will give us directions. Aha, uh-huh. so household items as art, as a means of reflecting the issues of the day. That's what the Ideal Home Exhibition currently underway at the Powerhouse hopes to tell. The Powerhouse is the major space for the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences in Sydney, which often does exactly that, looks at art and science as a synergy, and Campbell Bickerstaff will help us dive deeper into that. Campbell, thanks for your time. Uh, Tim, thank you for inviting me to speak to you. Firstly, when it comes to exhibitions using the collection from the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences, that collection is vast. How do you make that start? Is it from looking through the items first or do you build the items around a, a relevant or a current theme? It's an incredibly vast collection and you can probably do an exhibition on anything. This, this, this is the strange thing about the Museum of Applied Arts and Sciences because it's collection and the collecting habits have been voracious. There's half a million objects in the collection. You can probably, you can draw on it to flesh out just about any theme you want, you know, whether it be related to social history, the sciences, agriculture, transport, you know, and so it does take some time to be, you know, to be immersed in a collection, to understand it and to think about it as a tool for delivering ideas. So that I agree that that takes some time. You can, you know, you arrive here. Curators aren't just born in a day. You know, you don't just study it and then you, you know, you have to sort of, you know, I I walked around the, the collection at some of the large stores and I would go past something for ten years and then I'd stop one day and realise, oh my god, that's a Western Electric amplifier from the birth of sound cinema in 1929 that came from regional New South Wales and to me it's just been a rack of stuff but now I know what it is and I understand its significance because I've been studying other bits and and you sort of you you build up this knowledge about the whole collection over a very long time and that's what it takes it it's and I mean, back to your question about so how do you, you know, in more particular work with the collection. I mean, you go into the collection and you you don't want to use too much. You want to use it, tell your story with, in the simplest way possible. You want to put objects next to each other which resonate or, you know, they contrast or people... Because so, the first encounter in a gallery is you walk in and you're just looking, you're not reading labels straight away. You're looking at this stuff. And if you put two things next to each other and someone looks at them and goes, mm, why is that? there they might read the label so you try to provoke you know yeah provokes a good word so in terms of the ideal home that exhibition running at the moment how did that evolve ideal home was part of a suite of exhibitions that we wanted to collaborate with penrith regional gallery on and so they, they did a show called gravity a couple of years ago and ideal home came up so the the concept was already there. It sort of fell to me to fill it out. Like, you know, okay, Campbell, this is what we want to do. We're going to use Lula's house and we're going to put in this material from these artists and we want you to use the collection to tell another story about what the ideal home was. And they sort of, the the, the lead there was sort of coming from um, Leanne, who was running Penrith, Lula's house at the time, and that, that is about, well, what happened over the last century in the domestic space? What were the great changes? I mean, I had ideas about using some very abstract-looking objects because it, it's a gallery, and we were using 
commissions and artworks in a conversation with the collection, I actually started a list of very abstract-looking material from the home. So I had washing machines that looked like they'd come from a sci-fi film, but they were from the 1920s. They just didn't look like a washing machine. And, and I had a, a vacuum cleaner that looked like a, it was a, a missile. You know, it was all polished aluminium. And they said, hey, hey, you know, okay, Campbell, you know, how about we just get back a bit to more d- domestic space? Think about, you know, let's look, let's focus on good design. It was a matter of sort of going, I, I've got 100 years, I've got three plinths, I'm going to run up to about 60, 70 objects at the most. How am I going to tell the story and how am I going to split it up? So you've got a, you've got a quantity and you've got a, you know, a volume that you, you, you want, and you want to show good design in Australia and there are some pivotal moments in that space and there are some great Australian designs. And there is also some really humble and rudimentary designs from the early part of the 20th century. So it was really, I found material that fitted into three distinct phases of the domestic space, early, mid and late 20th century. This kind of leads me to want to talk about things beyond the ideal home. As a curator, you at the Arts and Science Museum, do you see a level of conflict and perhaps conversation as well between industrial design good or bad, and how that over time becomes a form of art? This is, that's a really interesting point and a really interesting comment to make because what my research is leading to or what I'm trying to sort of unpack is, okay, well, if, if, if there are designers like, say, Carlo Bugatti, who was an Italian furniture designer in the early 20th century, did these really extraordinary pieces of timber furniture which had parchment and leather and bone, and uh, they're, they're quite busy-looking, and I find them kind of on the verge of radical, but also the Italians in the 60s and 70s and actually anything the Italians do, I love that, you know, they are really, they push design to a certain limit, but they usually remain, they show some restraint and so they might be, whether it's doing a phone or a chair, it, you'll look at it and go, oh yeah, that's that's a phone. It's still a phone, even though it's sort of this, looks like a reclining female nude or something. You know, it's very, it looks sort of Henry Moore and they've used the material and the plasticity of it. And, but they show restraint. And, but then they went to, you know, that uh, radical design in the mid 60s where they were doing really outrageous looking things, sofas like the giant pair of lips, seats which were Roman columns which collapsed, giant sort of plastic polymer things which look like reeds of grass that are meant to be a chair. And I look at those objects and I go, well, okay, people design them, furniture designers design them, what does their output, this object, and again, like Newson and the Lockheed, what does that mean to design for the rest of us. What do all those other industrial designers who are making things that, like you say, which are utilitarian and useful, what do they draw on from this? these people who are creating these things which go beyond utility and become sculptural? And that's, that's the questions that I'm trying to sort of go, find out ways to unpack. And it's quite, a, it's, you know, it's an interesting exploration of existing things in the collection, but also a search for other material which will explore that those ideas i was sort of turned on to that because i had was very interested in when i as i said when i first got here it was you know information technology and they asked me to do an exhibition which became interface which was about uh information technology and the challenges that designers had in getting a very complex tool like a iphone or a smartphone 
to make it really simple and usable. And so I went back, you know, 100 years, or I wanted to go back further, but my boss always says, Campbell, you can't go back to agrarian society and try to tell the story from there. There's a limit, you know. But you start to look at the, the beginning of industrial design, so people like uh, Christopher Dresser and uh, Peter Behrens from Germany, and their ideas about uh, on the cusp of mass production and working out a new language for objects that deals with these new materials and new ideas and new ways of living. So that that led me to sort of look going, oh, I reckon we should have some really good radios by, you know, and, and typewriters by Olivetti and Braun and all these people who, all these companies that understood what great designers who were doing you know, extraordinary work in other fields, in furniture and architecture, but what they could bring to a typewriter or a radio, you know, and, and how that influenced people like Jonathan Ive at Apple, who would look at at uh, Dieter Rams's radios from the 50s and 60s and go, look, he's working at a time of rapid technological change. He wants to make this object for a new audience as simple and easy to use and read as possible. He doesn't want to challenge the you know the people to adopt this technology. They want to go, oh, I like that. I put it in my hand. I like the weight, the feel. It's really easy to use. You know those those little stories through the 20th century of all that material and these companies that went, you know, oh, we we need a great designer. We, we'll spend more time in research and development, but the product we come through with in the end is superior. It might be a little bit more expensive, but it's better and it makes the job easier. And it's and there's a, there are other stories intertwined with that. You know, it's it's not just about materials and design. It's about um, you know the sort of uh, I find it a, a democracy. I find that these 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 designers and these companies weren't interested in making a profit. They were interested in giving people access uh, to these tools and 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 being able to do their jobs and creativity better with these new technologies. Have I answered your question? Well covered, I think, actually, Campbell. But I might comment, or actually my question, whether you think or whether there actually is a solid connection between strict industrial design yeah. and art as a standalone form. Well, this is, oh, great. This is, they're not separate. They are, you know, within... People working in the plastic arts influenced people working in industrial design, and industrial designers influenced people working in the plastic arts. They're not living in separate countries and separate silos. You know, I've got a Henry Moore, a picture of the reclining family next to a Marcello Nazzoli telephone from 1957, because he is Henry Moore, and you know he's doing these sort of semi-abstracted things, but it's he's only abstracted to a certain extent. And he's living in a world where plastic is a new material, or you know, neoprene, and it, so so there's these properties of of that are coming into products in the real world that artists are influenced by as much as industrial designers look at these the plastic arts and go, hey, that's really cool. Look at what they're doing in pop art, especially in the 60s and the 70s, and then that was reflected in the products they were making. You know, we've got an Olivetti calculator. That is so pop art. It's it's just fabulous. It's you know these rounded sides and you know nipple shaped keys and neoprene bright yellow. Even their posters are sort of all pop art. They all they all talk to each other. Yes, it's there's there's so much 
that's what I love about it. Um, it is it, Tim? It's all that crosstalk between between those um, practices. Absolutely, I think we've well established that connection, Campbell. And speaking beyond what we originally came to talk about, which was the ideal home exhibition at the Powerhouse. But thanks for putting that exhibition together. It is underway right now at the Powerhouse in Sydney. And Campbell, thanks so much for your insights and for your time on the podcast today. Thanks a lot, Tim. I, I hope I answered your questions and that you know people might draw something from this. Thanks again for the opportunity. No doubt about it. Thanks very much again. Bye-bye. Campbell Bickerstaff there, cementing that connection actually between technology of the day and art, actually similar to what we talked about with Erin earlier. The Ideal Home is on at the Powerhouse in Sydney right now through until January. No need to spin the Pixel Perfect ProLab prize wheel as we head to Coolangatta on Australia's Gold Coast to take a look at another space in an unusual place. Byron Kothup loves art and his wife, she loves to style hair. So a block back from the beach, you head upstairs and you'll find a remarkable space, a groovy designed hair salon paired with not only an art studio but also an art space. It's the Maverick Hair and Art Space and I was lucky enough to catch up with Byron for a face-to-face in the gallery and I asked him first of all how new customers to the salon react when they also find themselves in an art gallery. It's out of the normal, I guess. Like people don't usually go to hair salons and, um, you know, experience art and um, artists' work and so forth. Yeah, it's it's supposed to be a bit quirky, you know, like um, and sharing the space. It was the best way we could incorporate a really lively, fun atmosphere, give the clients that come into the salon something else to look at than just themselves in the mirror. This wasn't your original art space. As I understand it, you had a salon previously, or your wife did anyway. She runs that side of the business, I'm guessing. Yeah, well, uh, we started six years ago and we opened a small space and literally I would take over my wife's salon on uh, Saturday nights and I would board up mirrors and um, with MDF and literally like pull all the chairs out and all the salon equipment would just come out and we'd just put an, a night on for the artists uh, and we'd have loads of people come and it, it would just kind of ramped up from success from there and, and there were really not many art spaces or galleries on the coast that were showing emerging artists' work. So we were really doing it for the artists and, you know, like I, I knew a bunch of friends that I wanted to show so... I was really just doing it for my mates at first and then uh, we've slowly gotten better at it and um, six years down the track. We've kind of found things that work and what don't work and um, yeah, it, it's uh, it's exciting, you know, like my wife, the hair salon gives a bit to the, to the art gallery and then the gallery also gives a bit to the salon, you know, like the clients always come in, it's always different and fresh. And how often do you turn the exhibitions over? You have an opening every four weeks, I'm guessing, something like that? Yeah, um, at first we started doing every three weeks um, and we were putting on shows pretty often. And uh, yeah, as I've gotten older, I've kind of I've, I've started a freelance curating shows outside of the gallery, doing public works as well. But uh, we've, re- we've got it back to about four weeks now, about, about one, once a month. So at the moment, what have you got showing? I'm actually using it as a studio for myself. So um, we kind of do a little bit of break between um, the June, July sort of EFA sort of thing. And, uh, and then we, we come back in um, late July and we've got an artist by name of Christian Fracture. He's from Brisbane and uh, he's showing um, some large scale painting works. He sort of deals with surf culture. And then we've also got Willie Wilkes coming in later this year. And um, he's, uh, he's actually a landscape painter and he's done a, 
a show um, in Brisbane recently with Jan Manton, uh, and it's actually on now. Um, so he's done landscapes of Canadian scenery and so forth. And they're really interesting abstract kind of works. But often we will, we, we kind of act, uh, having a Gold Coast gallery, we kind of like to show artists that do or have are having shows in Brisbane. And basically, you know, we kind of find that the audience is different on the Gold Coast. We kind of encourage the artists from like local areas, like, you know, even Brisbane only being about an hour and a half away and bring their work down to show to the audience down here because often those audiences down here don't get up to Brisbane. So it's like a whole new world for them. And, you know, the artists sort of put all this time and effort into making work. Um, particularly on solo shows and just to see it end at the end of one solo in their own city it's sort of like a shame so I always encourage the artists to sort of pick up and kind of and they kind of they they switch things up when they do and they find out new things as they show the work so yeah those two artists um, have had shows in Brisbane and yeah it's really about just kind of bringing them to the Gold Coast and getting them into a new audience on that note, and you're no stranger to galleries in Brisbane, Goma, for instance, yep. and also out at Mwilambar too, you were out there recently with a show. How different does it feel working between a regional gallery such as this and the larger galleries like Goma in Brisbane? How does the audience get a different feel and a different connection with the artist between those two types of galleries? I guess the metro galleries, you know, the ones in the cities like Big Goma and Quag, the public already know what art is. They can't. They kind of already know what contemporary art is, and you know, um, I mean, we find out a lot of our ways about contemporary art through social media and you know the internet. But like for everyday people, they have to take themselves to the gallery to go, you know, look. And these bigger galleries in Brisbane, they usually only ever go to these places in the larger cities. So regional galleries really have this mission to educate the like like what is public art and and what's like what's happening right now and to remain engaging and have really engaging shows but i really love regional galleries and just regional towns because they have so much you know there's so much history about them um they're often like not developed like cities they often have time to think and rekindle old memories and and like often curating shows or the curators that show have shows at these regional they kind of have like a nice delicate touch and like a like really rich content um and then when you go walk around the town or so forth, it, you know, it kind of comes back to you and you realize things. And I think that sort of the public and the local community kind of want to attach themselves to those stories and can attach themselves to those stories. So that's sort of the job of the regional gallery, I think. I've spoken to a few people in the podcast who curate and own regional galleries. And some of the challenges that they have are things like growing a level of legitimacy, trying to attract the artists that they want into the gallery. The Gold Coast is not a small community, so I'm not sure that you would suffer the same thing. But what are some of the challenges you've had as a small gallery operator? I guess the worst thing that annoys people coming in for free piss. <laughs> Should I say well, for your openings? You <laughs> yeah, mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like, oh, you know, you get the young ones, and you know, you get a beer sponsor, and it's it's everyone's here just wanting to have your beers, and I don't know if they're actually here for the art. Sometimes. Let me tell you, that happens in the metro areas as well. <laughs> yeah, um, but you know, it brings a good crowd, and you know that that if if that's all I can get more people in the gallery, then that's good enough for me. You know, that that's maybe one, but. Um, just getting word out like today's you know social media and things it seems to 
you know, advertising, that's, that's a hard thing. And, and then, you know, um, people claim about doing mailing lists and things like that. And you can build up mailing lists, but, you know, like people go to junk mail and things like that. So it's, it's, it's really hard to get people. And I think, you know, approaching papers and the smaller articles and bloggers and things like that, we, we do our best to try and get to those guys. And it does work. Um, it brings in, you know, people that are of interest, um, uh, like interested in what the show is happening. Um, you'll go up and down like a pair of honeymoon underwear sometimes with <laughs> the numbers on your shows. Speaking of honeymoons, I'm kind of thinking sitting here, in terms of your wife running the salon and you taking care of the gallery, was there kind of like a matrimonial compromise there? You wanted to get into the art business. She wanted to get into the hair business. Yeah. The only way that you guys could survive together was to actually combine the two. Yeah, you could probably say that. <laughs> we kind of just lunged forward and went went for it, you know. Like, yeah, it's, it's a give and a take, you know. I I think I put up with her crap, and she puts up with mine. Um, you know, the art shows that they can be, you know, they're always really good turnouts. You know, like as long as I always clean up and things like that. And like, there's something nice. Like, we gain clients also from our art shows. Um, like we bring people in that don't usually come to this salon, and they realize like, oh, this is amazing. You know, I want to, I want to get my hair done here. So, you know, it works on that atmosphere too. And um, and then also, uh, it's also for our own staff. Like, they love it. Like. They uh, they really enjoy the constant change of the atmosphere and uh, knowing there's things on and, and you know like just being around like, yeah constant change in the workplace is important. Yeah, there's a great uh, synergy of design here. I notice when I walk in the the interior design of the gallery matches back with the design of the salon. It's right on. It's right on trend. Mm. In terms of progressing forward now, where do you want to take this? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, we've got a little bookstore happening now as well. Um, we kind of try and show independent publication. We get a few books from uh, Amsterdam distributors, uh, distributed from Melbourne um, as well, um, that um, bring books in from Europe and uh, other places. So, you know, what you can't usually get in a bookstore, we kind of provide. And then also uh, we've kind of expanded our space. Um, so instead of having just ongoing shows and constant change, uh, we found that clients were finding it hard to get in like once a month. So um, we devoted a small space uh, where we did the classic salon hang um, and uh, every artist that comes through the doors um, contribute a piece and it's kind of like a stock room for us and uh, we put it up on one wall. So clients can kind of investigate, see the artists, um, how they work, and then sometimes, you know, um, things flourish from there with um, cons- uh, commissions and um, or they buy the work on the wall, which is always great. It's uh, I really think um, nurturing the artist culture here on the Gold Coast is really important um, and uh, providing space for them to experiment and uh, to show new contemporary work. Um, and, yeah, I really enjoy getting a kick out of it. Byron, well done on what you've done here. It is a lovely space. And I certainly hope that anyone who comes to Cool and Gather and spends some time on the Gold Coast comes to visit Maverick. Ah, thank you. That's Byron Kothup doing what he loves and creating a great contemporary art focal point in Cool and Gather. And if you want to learn more, head to maverick.net.au. That's maverick.net.au. And if you want to learn or hear more about a specific exhibition or upcoming opening, 
And please do get in touch via the contact details at www.insidethegallery.com.au. That's the podcast for this edition. Please do share and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And, of course, we'll always keep updating Inside the Gallery's Facebook and Instagram pages with exhibitions and other stuff that we love. I'm Tim Stackpool, and please do remember, when you're inside the gallery, remove your backpack, okay? Bye-bye for now.